Section 4. The 1940s. The Triumph of the Middle. Quote, Ralph W. Tyler was a prophet of evaluation. End quote. America's preoccupation with World War II precluded a sustained support for curricular experimentation. The agenda of the social reconstructionists lost what remained of its mass appeal. The theoretical eclecticism associated with the appearance of the synoptic text, which had surfaced in the 1930s, cemented its position in the field. Theoretical eclecticism was institutionalized in the field with the founding on January 1, 1946, of the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development, ASCD. This organization was formed in 1943 in the merger of the National Education Association's Department of Supervisors and Directors of Instruction with the Independent Society for Curriculum Study. ASCD committed itself to promoting the cause of a functional curriculum developed by the Joint Committee 10 years earlier. Chapters and articles in ASCD's publications, such as Educational Leadership and the Yearbooks, emphasized democratic, rather than administrative, means of changing the curriculum. Teachers were regarded as central to the curriculum development process, partly in loyalty to progressive ideas of democracy and partly to the legacy of social efficiency, a marriage reminiscent of Jesse Newland's 1923 Denver Curriculum Reform Project, see Chapter 2. In its early decades of existence, only the 1956 ASCD yearbook, What Shall the High School Teach?, deviated from the mainstream ASCD publications. That volume included a historical analysis by Lawrence Crimmin and a chapter by Arno Bellack, which rejected ASCD's eclecticism in favor of a curriculum design based on the intellectual resources of the culture. Clybard commented, quote, By 1956, however, the directly functional curriculum, which had been a cornerstone of ASCD ideology, was under serious attack from academic critics, and the respectability that Bellack accorded to a curriculum organized around the fields of knowledge was not especially welcome in ASCD circles. End quote. Three types of synoptic texts. During the 1940s, synoptic texts became differentiated into three distinct types. The first type restricted its focus to elementary schools. The second type examined curriculum concerns appropriate for secondary schools, and the third purported to depict curriculum issues for both elementary and secondary schools. Three books illustrate these three types of synoptic curriculum texts all three of which remain very much in the curriculum development tradition. J. Murray Lee and Doris Lee wrote The Child and His Curriculum, which focused upon the child as organizing center of the curriculum. For the Lees, the teacher became a guide to the learning experiences of child. Thus, the child-centered orientation remained an important force in the 1940s. A secondary curriculum text, Harold Alberti's Reorganizing the School Curriculum, was dedicated to Alberti's mentor, Boyd Bode, and reflects Bodes' thought. Alberti argued that the high school should, quote, play a significant role in perpetuating, refining, and interpreting our democratic way of life, end quote. While emphasizing the so-called foundations of curriculum development, Alberti did include a section on the curriculum in action, surveying experimentation efforts and curriculum trends. Also included were a how-to section on pre-planning for learning, as well as a section on audiovisual materials, which were by then readily available in many schools. Alberti's unique contribution was his curriculum design for achieving general education. Illustrative of the third type, both elementary and secondary curriculum, are two texts. The first is J. Minor Gwynn's Curriculum Principles and Social Trends. The book demonstrates the eclectic synoptic genre instituted by Caswell and Campbell. The Gwynn book is encyclopedic, 
beginning with a historical overview of the evolution of the curriculum and discussing all facets of curriculum development and pertinent social factors as well. Importantly, Gwen espouses a centrist position. Quote, the book describes numerous curricular experiments which have been conducted in various schools and school systems. It relates all curriculum developments and experiments to current social trends, and it constructively discusses those developments and experiments and trends. It integrates good practice and sound theory. It tells how and why. It takes a middle-of-the-road position between extreme progressivism and extreme fundamentalism. End quote. Gwynne's widely read text solidified this interest, theoretically eclectic position. The middle had triumphed. Persistent Life Situations A second text illustrative of the third type of synoptic text is Developing a Curriculum for Modern Living by Florence B. Stratemeyer, Hamden L. Forkner, Margaret G. McKim, and A. Harry Passow. In this volume, the concept of persistent life situations was elaborated. Stratemeyer wrote, quote, A curriculum which has maximum meaning for learners develops as learners and their teachers work together on the problems and interests of everyday living. Persistent life situations are, quote, those situations that recur in the life of the individual in many different ways as he grows from infancy to maturity, end quote. This notion became in this text an umbrella under which traditional design aspects of the curriculum, such as scope, sequence, continuity, balance, and depth, were situated. Persistent life situations might have originated as a response to the common criticism during the 1940s that, quote, schools had little influence on the lives of youth. Educational activities begun in school were usually dropped when students left school, end quote. Linking traditional curricular concerns with the notion of life situation might enable the teacher to link school knowledge with everyday life. Decreased scholarly production during World War II. Understandably, the production of curriculum synoptic texts decreased during World War II. For instance, while 80 curriculum books were published during the decade, only 13 were published during 1943 to 1945. School subjects were influenced as well by the war. Mathematics courses began to employ military examples. Social studies courses focused on wartime aims. As the war drew to a close, the curriculum reflected speculation concerning international relations in the post-war era. The release of the results of the eight-year study had been ill-timed and consequently largely ignored. Social efficiency advocates would recognize and seize their opportunity. The 1945 NSSE Yearbook In 1945, the National Study for the Study of Education, which had produced the landmark 1927 yearbook on curriculum, published its 44th yearbook. Part 1 was entitled American Education in the Postwar Period, Curriculum Reconstruction. Two curricularists involved in the project would emerge with heightened visibility and influence, Ralph W. Tyler and Hilda Taba. Tyler chaired the committee that prepared the report. Taba wrote an important section entitled Problems in Curriculum Reconstruction, her specific area of interest being General Techniques of Curriculum Planning. The subtitle of Reconstruction, as well as the content of the yearbook, disclosed that the reform impulse continued to constitute the raison d'etre of the field. In his introduction, Tyler argued that too often efforts to reform the curriculum resulted in an overcrowded curriculum with subjects' boundaries blurred. Often an elective system was developed which left, quote, students having to make the selections the staff were unable to make, end quote. Tyler argued that the next step of curriculum change would involve careful selection and elimination. Taba, who would publish an influential synoptic text in 1962, 
discuss the selection and organization of learning experiences, focusing upon planning specific units of study. This language would be used by Tyler later in the decade in his basic principles of curriculum and instruction. Tava's emphasis, as well as that of the yearbook in general, was changing school curriculum so that it might become more functional and useful to the nation's youth, a view which resurfaces from time to time. Curriculum ought to reflect students' outlook. Reports of special commissions on education and curriculum were again published during the 1940s. One example of this genre in this decade is the report of the Special Committee on the Secondary School Curriculum Prepared for the Youth Commission. In What the High Schools Ought to Teach, the authors argued that a majority of students required an education not specifically directed toward college admission or a specific vocational role. The secondary curriculum ought to reflect the outlook of the majority of students, a view consistent with the life adjustment emphasis being taken up by synoptic text writers. The concept of general education became linked with life adjustment during this period. The famous Red Book Report of the Harvard Committee on the Objectives of Education in a Free Society, entitled General Education in a Free Society, also argued that the majority of high school students were not being well served by extant curricula. Introduced by J.B. Conant, who would later become visible in teacher education, the report alleged that, quote, instead of looking forward to college, three-fourths of students now look forward directly to work, end quote. The committee called for a general education which provided knowledge of natural science, social science, and the humanities. Such knowledge would be taught in ways that non-college-bound students could learn. General education, the argument continued, would help produce an educated citizenry capable of making wise decisions in a democratic society. The Red Book was widely discussed in professional journals and conferences, but it had little, if any, effect on high school curricula in the country at large. Social efficiency as life adjustment. During these years, immediately after World War II, the social efficiency movement reclaimed lost status and power. This time, it eschewed its explicit embrace of scientific management and American industry for a concept called life adjustment education. The surface parallels between the earlier view of curriculum preparing students for productive vocational lives and this view of adjustment to life are self-evident. Richard Hofstadter, in his widely read Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, characterized life adjustment education as a movement stemming from the wide sweep of progressive educational reforms beginning before the 20th century. In fact, the term was first used in 1945 by a vocational educator in connection with the neglect of the majority of high school youth who were not going on to college. Life adjustment never became a movement, yet the label was used by such historians as Arthur Bestor in his attack on the field of education six years later. At the 1947 National Conference on Life Adjustment Education, educators expressed concern for the general track student the student who neither aspired to college nor had chosen a specific vocational track. Their dilemma was linked to enrollment problems, and specifically a dropout problem. The report, entitled Life Adjustment Education for Every Youth, worried about low school enrollment. In 1940-41, the year of high school enrollments, only 73% of high school-aged children were enrolled in schools. Over the years 1943 to 1944, quote, only 7 out of 10 enter senior high school, and fewer than 4 of them remain to graduate, end quote. For those enrolled in school, over half were not well served by college-bound curriculum or vocational programs. Charles Proser composed what became known as the Proser Resolution, demanding that the U.S. Commissioner of Education and the Assistant Commissioner for Vocational Education 
call a series of conferences to address the problem. Life Adjustment Conferences The call was answered. Five regional conferences were scheduled under the joint direction of the Division of Secondary Education and the Division of Vocational Education. The first was held in April 1946. The second was held in Chicago in June. The third was held in Cheyenne in September. The fourth was held in Sacramento the same month. And the fifth was held in Birmingham in November 1946. Participants reached consensus regarding life adjustment education, elaborating nine points. First, it was concluded that, at the present time, there was inadequate life adjustment education. Second, it was argued that public opinion could be enlisted to support life adjustment education. Third, the curriculum lay in the provision of educational experiences based on the diverse needs of secondary school-aged youth. Fourth, to so provide, teachers had to develop a broadened viewpoint and a genuine desire to serve all youth. Fifth, in this national effort, local resources had to be employed maximally. Sixth, the so-called practical arts, functional experiences in home and family life, in health and physical fitness, and civic competence had to be provided in all secondary schools. Seventh, supervised work experience was essential for the life adjustment of youth. Eighth, it was resolved that the number of small school districts represented an administrative barrier to life adjustment curriculum reform. Finally, it was resolved that an intimate, comprehensive, and continuous program of guidance in pupil personnel services had to underlie all efforts to provide life adjustment education. Life Adjustment's Contributions Life adjustment curriculum reform stimulated a large literature. Two commissions on life adjustment education convened for three years. The movement made two contributions to curriculum reform. It extended the concept of curriculum beyond school subjects specifically, and it stimulated genuine concern for the dropout rate in the nation's schools. There is no evidence, however, that life adjustment views actually brought about many major curricular changes. The movement did support the addition of guidance counselors and the elimination of very small schools. On the other hand, its rhetorical successes provoked the reappearance in the 1950s of a reform movement that had been relatively silent regarding curriculum reform for 50 years. The 1950s would witness the resurgence of the mental disciplinarian and classical curriculum orientation. See Chapter 2 for a review of these terms. In addition to these more public debates regarding the school curriculum, a major step was taken in the progress of the curriculum field as an academic discipline. That step was taken at the 1947 University of Chicago Curriculum Theory Conference. University of Chicago Curriculum Theory Conference The University of Chicago Curriculum Theory Conference was held on October 16th and 17th, 1947. This conference is appraised by many scholars as a benchmark in the field. This is not to say, writes Paul R. Clore, quote, that there were not efforts that approached the level of theory before this time, but rather to underscore that this was the first to emphasize curriculum theory as theory, end quote. Conference proceedings were published as Toward Improved Curriculum Theory, edited by Virgil Herrick and Ralph Tyler. In a preliminary overview section, Herrick and Tyler discussed the threefold tasks of a defensible curriculum theory. First, curriculum theory should identify the critical issues or points in curriculum and their underlying generalizations. Secondly, curriculum theory must identify relationships which exist between these critical points and their supporting structures. Thirdly, defensible curriculum theory must suggest and forecast the future of approaches made to resolve these issues. Consistent with the field's identity at this time, most papers focused upon curriculum development. Papers by Herrick and B. O'Thanel Smith, however, quote, 
clearly suggested the need for new paradigms for curriculum theorizing. End quote. Education in a Transitional Period In his social perspective as the basic orientation of the curriculum, B.O. Smith identified five tasks of education in a transitional period. Smith first argued for a new frame of acceptance, for example, a value orientation adequate for the age. Second, Smith argued for collective social goals, which conferred meaning upon individual effort and achievement. Third, curricularists must draw upon a conceptualization of human nature based upon psychological and social theory, one which conveyed, in Smith's words, quote, new insight into personal and social actions and accomplishments, end quote. Fourth, he called for a new pattern of thinking regarding social policies and actions to replace current linear, compartmentalized thinking, which result in rigid boundaries between disciplines. In his The Concept of Curriculum Design, Herrick listed 11 propositions regarding curriculum design. He pointed to a need for seeking new directions, asking new questions. Herrick called for analysis of curriculum decisions and curriculum approaches and orientations via examination of their underlying assumptions. Tyler's Basic Principles These contributions were overshadowed by Ralph W. Tyler's The Organization of Learning Experiences, a paper which would become a chapter of the single most influential curriculum text ever written, Basic Principles of Curriculum and Instruction, which we reviewed in Chapter 1. Tyler's 83-page book was the syllabus of a course he taught at the University of Chicago, Education 360, Basic Principles of Curriculum and Instruction. In the introduction, Tyler stated his intention to, quote, help the student of education to understand more fully the kinds of problems involved in developing a curriculum and plan of instruction and to acquire some techniques by which these basic problems may be attacked, end quote. As we saw in Chapter 1, Tyler's book established a tradition of research and teaching about curriculum, which would remain unchallenged for 20 years. In it, Tyler extended and developed concepts linked with his evaluation work with the eight-year study. The administrative and managerial origin and motive for this work are significant in understanding its structure and content. Structurally, the rationale is a linear administrative procedure for curriculum development. The steps are 1. The selection and definition of learning objectives, discussed in the chapter entitled, What Educational Purposes Should the School Seek to Attain? 2. The selection and creation of appropriate learning experiences, discussed in the chapter entitled, How Can Learning Experiences Be Selected Which Are Likely to Be Useful in Attaining These Objectives? 3. The Organization of Learning Experiences to Achieve a Maximum Cumulative Effect, described in the chapter entitled, how can learning experiences be organized for effective instruction? And four, the evaluation of the curriculum so that revisions become discernible, described in the chapter entitled, How Can the Effectiveness of Learning Experiences Be Evaluated? These four principles stimulated, quote, the format of curriculum guides, teachers' editions of school books, lesson plan books, evaluation instruments by accrediting agencies, course syllabi, and many curriculum books that appeared in the 1950s and 60s. End quote. The simplicity and functionality of the Tyler rationale were compelling for many educators. One prominent curriculum historian points out that all the essential elements of the Tyler rationale were derived from predecessors' work, including those of Dewey, Rugg, the Eight-Year Study, and Taba's 1945 work. There would be, eventually, many criticisms of the Tyler rationale, especially in the 1970s. It would be defended as well. See Chapter 4. To illustrate the range of this criticism that would come in 30 years, let us look briefly 
at a criticism of Tyler's emphasis upon objectives from a scholar interested in cognitive psychology. Quote, Clearly, the teacher who aims for a transformation of cognitive structure is concerned with how the child thinks and not solely with the product of his thinking. The teacher, so guided, cannot enter the instructional situation with predetermined behavioral objectives for the students. Objectives must arise out of the situation in which, first, what is possible has been revealed. End quote. The Tyler procedure is not a teacher's statement of curriculum development. It is a bureaucrat's. Ralph Winfred Tyler. Inevitably, figures who are widely criticized are also highly visible. Ralph W. Tyler is perhaps the most influential figure the field has known. Who was this man who first came on the curriculum scene with his evaluation work on the eight-year study, and then crystallized a half-century of curriculum development thought in one thin book which sold over 85,000 copies during 36 printings and was translated into seven foreign languages? As we noted earlier, Ralph Winford Tyler received his doctoral education at the University of Chicago, one of the three great institutions in American curriculum studies during the first half of the 20th century. The other two were Teachers College, Columbia University, and Ohio State University. Tyler has indicated that as a graduate student, the ideas of George S. Counts were among the most influential factors in his Ph.D. education. He pointed to Counts' article in the 26th yearbook of the National Society for the Study of Education, entitled, Some Notes on the Foundation of Curriculum, as delineating a series of topics in which three of the categories, curriculum making in the nature of the society, curriculum making in the organization of knowledge, and curriculum making in the nature of the learner, ultimately became the sources of what 20 years later came to be called the Tyler Curriculum, Instruction and Evaluation Rationale. A fourth category, curriculum making and the scientific method, made the deepest impression on Tyler's future intellectual stance. Counts had argued in 1927 that the relation of the scientific method to the construction of curriculum had been and was the central question of importance in the domain of constructing an institution that would address the needs of each student. Clearly, it was Count's categories of curriculum construction, not his social reconstructionism, that influenced Tyler during his graduate study in the 1920s. Tyler's argument for a shift from child-centeredness to more generalized behaviors as goals of education was a response to the 1912 research based on the principle of generalization in learning that was formulated by his mentor, Charles W. Judd. Tyler's dissertation seemed to reflect a Juddian focus, as indicated in its title. Statistical Methods for Utilizing Personal Judgments to Evaluate Activities for Teacher Training Curricula Perhaps the most lasting influence on the theoretical development of Tyler at the University of Chicago was the work and teaching of W.W. Charters, the great social efficiency curricularist. Tyler took three seminars in techniques of curriculum construction from Charters. He also worked as a statistical technician on the Commonwealth Teacher Training Study, which was directed by Charters. After receiving the Ph.D. degree in 1927, Tyler's first appointment was to the faculty of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he remained for two years. From Chapel Hill, Tyler moved to Columbus and Ohio State University, during which time he published 59 articles, 25 of which were published in the Ohio State University Journal, the Educational Research Bulletin, and eight of which published in the Journal of Higher Education, a publication instituted by W.W. Charters in 1930 when Charters himself was on the faculty at Ohio State. The principles Tyler identified in constructing achievement tests have served as the basis for most of the major efforts in evaluation since 1934, 
Tyler has been termed, quote, a prophet of evaluation. All educational evaluation is a commentary on Tyler's work of the 1930s, end quote. When Ralph Tyler joined the faculty at Ohio State in September 1929, he was assigned an office across the hall from Boyd Bode, the prominent professor of philosophy of education whose work we reported earlier. He became a friend of Bode. They often walked together to the faculty club for lunch. Bode recommended that Tyler be asked to draw up a design for the comprehensive evaluation of the eight-year study, a job which, of course, launched his career. In the eight-year study evaluation, Hilda Taba was in charge of evaluation in the social studies. Bruno Bettelheim, a refugee from a Nazi concentration camp, took charge of the evaluation of arts programs. Others working with Tyler on the eight-year study who would become major figures included Benjamin S. Bloom, Lee J. Kronbach, and Herbert Thelen. In January 1938, University of Chicago President Robert H. Hutchins invited Tyler to accept the dual position of chairman of the Department of Education and the University Examiner. Tyler reminded Hutchins, who had been a vocal critic of the progressive education movement, that he was director of the evaluation staff of the eight-year study, but this fact was evidently of no consequence. Tyler became chair at 36. Following former chairs of the department such as Francis W. Parker, John Dewey, and Charles H. Judd. In 1952, Tyler became chairman of a planning committee that sought to establish a unique research center, whose original and continuing purpose was to support better research in the behavioral sciences. This research center became the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. In October 1953, Tyler was chosen to become the first executive director he would remain in this position until his retirement in 1967. The 1940s end. The 1940s ended quite differently than they began. Progressivism had occupied curriculum center stage as the decade opened. The eight-year study promised a revolutionary revision of secondary school curricula. However, World War II functioned to erase progressivism's influence and the post-war era began with the partial reappearance of social efficiency, this time in the guise of life adjustment curriculum. Education The life adjustment movement would prove to be short-lived, and the functionality of social efficiency asserted itself simply and forcefully in the Tyler rationale. As the history of curriculum reform has already suggested, even while one orientation occupies center stage, forces gather on the periphery waiting for their movement of ascendancy. The 1947 University of Chicago Conference Toward Improved Curriculum Theory both signaled and authorized such possibilities even while it heralded the triumph of Tyler and curriculum functionality. It would take two decades, however, for conditions to favor the realization of those possibilities for a fundamental reconceptualization of the field. <laughs>